Well, let's begin this morning. We're at week nine this morning on this class in the Great Awakening. Originally, it was going to be 13 weeks, but the one week we kind of spilled over into the next, so it's, it's going to actually be 14 weeks. Uh, your original uh, outline with the dates in it clearly has been exploded at this point, so uh, I'm sure you, I don't have to say that for you to know that, but in any case, uh, we're just moving ahead week by week. I want to start this morning with a couple of verses from the first chapter of Revelation. This is one of the great uh, Trinitarian blessings in the Scriptures. It's, uh, it's so doctrinally rich and pregnant, and it's so devotionally deep as well. So I want to open with this, and then we'll get started. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we can and we should ask this question. Who who have you loved and who have you washed? And we can answer resoundingly your entire church, every single soul that the Father has given you of which we count ourselves. We thank you for this love, Lord Jesus. How personal and how rich and how deep and how intimate it is. You you have laid your love upon us from the beginning before we were born. And that love continues to rest upon us as you care for us day by day, hour by hour, year by year, moment by moment. It is you, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our head and our Savior. And you saved us from our sins, our treason and our transgressions and our... what would be apostasy if it was not for the fact that you are interceding for us even now at the throne of grace. So we thank you for your intimate, deep, eternal love, Lord Jesus. And not only that you've loved us, but that you have washed us, and not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with your own precious blood, drawn from holy veins, drawn from from the veins, as it were, of God himself. What great love you have shown to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to adore you this morning. And... And now, in, this, in these coming minutes, as we contemplate your work in this world and drawing each soul that you have loved, Lord Jesus, to yourself in your own good time and in your own good way, 
But in every case, by your Holy Spirit, and in every case through the word of the gospel, of your death, and of your resurrection, and of your ascension, and of your exaltation. Help us to center our thoughts around you, Lord Jesus, even as we contemplate the acts of men in this world. The two are not separated. So be with us now. In your great and your holy and your most merciful and mighty name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the Wesley brothers and their dismal affair in America, and then coming back to England, if you recall, and their conversion, uh, the influence of the Moravians upon them, uh, who, uh, of whom we have many good things and there are many bad things to say. Uh, that is the case in general with pietism. There's good things, there's bad things to say about it as a movement as a whole. What we've been looking at in the Great Awakening in America uh, in the early 1700s is the influence of reformed pietism, which uh, has many more strengths than weaknesses. Uh, many more. And so much glory is involved in the narrative as we've been going through. I, I hope that you're, you're appreciating it. Uh, it's a great narrative, again, of the work of Jesus Christ in this world. I don't, I don't want us ever to forget this. Well, that was last week. Uh, also, we looked at David Brainerd, and we will be coming back again to David Brainerd in a few weeks, uh, as well as Edwards, uh, which I'm excited about, I'm looking forward to, but that's a few weeks down the road. Uh, so we left Brainerd entering Yale in September of 1739, and uh, he would have some troubles at Yale, and again, we'll come to them and, and we'll see the ordeal that occurred there. Uh, at that same time, September 1739, uh, George Whitfield was on his way to America. So we, we looked at George Whitfield. We were introduced to him a few weeks ago. Uh, we left him last time, a couple of weeks ago, in Gloucester convalescing, you remember, from his, uh, his, his uh, close proximity to death because of his asceticism. Uh, that was in the summer of 1736. That's where we left him last, George Whitfield. Summer, 1736. Now we're in September 1739, three years later, basically. So we haven't really paid attention to him for three years. But now we're coming back to him. So we'll pick right back up and very briefly swing through up to the point where he departs for America. After his first sermon in the summer of 1736, uh, He immediately began accumulating a certain amount of fame. The, the power of the Lord that was with him, uh, the effect on the people was profound from the very beginning. Churches began filling up. Uh, invitations were pouring in everywhere for him to come and preach. So he was going at first, although not for very long, in, from one Anglican church to another. They were opening their doors to him. He would come in and preach. As I said, the churches were, were overflowing, really. Uh, Whitfield says, The congregations continually increased. There was no end of the people flocking to hear the word of God. They were all attention and heard like people hearing for eternity. Well, why, uh, why 
all of this attention. People hearing for eternity, they were all attention. What, what marked the difference? Well, there's a couple things. One, you, you remember, uh, I've, I've quoted actually several times from J.C. Ryle, who's a, a wonderful church historian as well as a great minister of the gospel, Anglican minister in the 1800s. Uh, he said this of the England at this time, in which Whitfield suddenly, uh, suddenly appeared, as it were, uh, preaching with such power. Uh, this is what Whitfield says. Sermons everywhere at that time had been little better than miserable moral essays, utterly devoid of anything likely to awaken, convert, or save souls. Natural theology, essentially, is what was being preached from the pulpits. So, in the first place, you think of these people used to this kind of sermonizing, little sermonettes, miserable, as Ryle put it, miserable moral essays, Suddenly hearing these converting doctrines, uh, justification by faith alone, which had become controversial, you remember from Edwards preaching it. He preached it against the advice of, of his elders and, and fellow ministers because it was, had now become taboo. It was a controversial subject. Uh, the doctrine of the new birth, which again is one of the great distinctives of the Great Awakening. Preaching. A man must be born again. So, that's one reason for the attention. But the other reason is people were hearing these saving doctrines from the mouth of a man who was imbued with bold and distinct impressions uh, from the solemn objects of another world. And there I'm quoting uh, that, first, that first entry in your handout by W.G.T. Shedd, who was a, was a great Reformed theologian uh, in the 19th century. Bold and distinct impressions from the solemn objects of another world. Well, this, this describes Whitfield at this time. And so you put the two together, saving doctrines, uh, spoken, again, from the mouth of a man who had this... Had this uh, well, an, an intense and an overwhelming sense of the majesty of God abiding with him. Sometimes, Whitfield said, sometimes I was so overpowered with the sense of God's infinite majesty that I would be constrained to throw myself on the ground and offer my soul as a blank in his hands to write on it what he pleased. And when I read that quote, it reminds me so much of Isaiah chapter 6 and how there was Isaiah they're actually face to face with the glory and the majesty of God and it so overwhelmed him that he fell and he said, woe is me, we all know this passage for I am an unclean man of unclean lips among the midst of an unclean people but then what does he do? He offers himself, body and soul here am I, Lord, send me and this is the invariable response of a man who has been arrested and thrown down and cast down in himself before the glory of God. And we, we're seeing this over and over and over again. I, I hope it's not become so repetitive that you're, you're wearing out, but we've, we're seeing this in each of these, these leading figures in the Great Awakening. But as we're going to see later on this morning, it wasn't just the leading figures who were being endued with this kind of spiritual power. It was men that we don't even have the records of their names. I mean, th there, were, there was so much preaching and we haven't come into it yet, but we're just starting this morning to enter kind of into the, the deluge, as it were, from on high, where men, they, they, their names are lost to history, were preaching with so, so much power, and it was the Holy Spirit using the gospel as, as they were opening their mouths and 
drawing those to Jesus Christ, whom the Father had, had given him. This is what we're witnessing. It's, it's marvelous. I mean, it's clearly post-apostolic. Uh, we, don't, we don't have the, 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 uh, the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit being displayed, but those regular gifts of ministry that Christ has endued his church with uh, and the moral power of the Spirit at work uh, is something that we ought never to discount in post apostolic and post-biblical times. This is the way that the Lord works in the world to a greater or lesser degree depending on His sovereign will. Nobody else's will. His sovereign will. Well, soon, uh, upwards of nine times a week, Whitfield was already preaching. So, oftentimes more than once, every day during the week, not just on the Lord's Day, but the demand was so great and people were so ready to flock into churches and, as we'll soon see, into open fields to hear this man preach. Even before the sun rose, uh, not like an 11 o'clock starting time, but before dawn, at 6 o'clock, they were, they were having bells rung for people to come to hear Whitfield preach. People going to church, Whitfield says, with their lanterns in hand, conversing about the things of God. Well, the first great temptation in the midst of all of this fame and applause, you can, you can imagine this, this adulation. Uh, in it came his first great temptation to think more highly of himself than he ought to. It's invariable with any successful ministry. The people, Whitfield said at this time, were, were quite extravagant in their applauses. Had it not been for my compassionate high priest, it would have destroyed me. I used to plead with him to take me by the hand and lead me unhurt through this fiery furnace. He heard my request and gave me to see the vanity of all commendations but his own. I, I love this statement, this admission by Whitfield. And even though it was suited to his particular circumstances, it's, it's a great rule for the entire Christian life. We have a compassionate high priest. And whatever our temptation, whatever our besetting sin, it behooves us to follow his advice. I, I love, I just love how he puts this. I used to plead with him to take me by the hand and lead me unhurt through this fiery furnace. And he answered my prayer. Um, if I can be frank, I know that I don't. And I suspect that probably all of us can make the admission that in our times of temptations, we fall far short of doing what the Lord himself has prescribed for us to do come and plead with him, take me by the hand and lead me through this fiery furnace. This is the Lord's office. This is the office of Jesus Christ to come at that kind of a prayer and to lead us unhurt through the fiery furnace. He heard my request and gave me to see. It's not something that was the result of a human calculation. Okay, let me think, what are the reasons why I should avoid this temptation right now and, and trample trample on the bellies of my lusts, to use a, an, an, uh, an analogy there. Uh, this is not how he overcame. The Lord gave him to see what he couldn't in his own powers to see. That's a spiritual work, and it's what the Lord Jesus does for all of his own that come to him. Well, besides the adulation, on the other side there was growing opposition, and this was a hallmark of, of Whitfield's ministry. Great opposition. Not from the people, but from his fellow ministers. 
his fellow Anglican ministers were beginning to oppose him strenuously, primarily for, primarily for these two great doctrines that he was constantly preaching over and over and over and over again, doctrine of the new birth and the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So pulpits were beginning to be closed to him, and uh, so now he took to the fields. And this was a revolutionary move. And to this day, we can debate the, the, the pros and the cons of a minister of the gospel, an ordained minister of the gospel, appealing to the people outside of the regular ministry of the church. It's a greatly debated point. Uh, but here we have it. It's the history, and this is what we're studying. So he took to the fields, and now instead of having 100 or 200 or 300 people, he was having thousands. There was now room for thousands, literally, many of thousands, to gather in open fields. And he would stand up on a tombstone or a tree of a stump uh, and preach to them. Well, this is what began happening. The people pressed vehemently, he says in his, uh, in his journals, the people pressed vehemently to hear the word of God. He enabled me to speak with the demonstration of the Spirit. The Holy Ghost so powerfully worked upon my hearers, pricking their hearts and melting them into floods of tears. Again, this is a wonderful description of Acts chapter 2, minus those extraordinary apostolic gifts that were being displayed. There was no speaking in tongues here. But the Holy Ghost so powerfully worked upon my hearers, pricking their hearts, melting them into floods of tears with the gospel being preached. Uh, this, is, this is wonderful stuff here. By the summer of 1739, so we're, we're leaping forward here uh, because we want to get Whitfield to America, uh, he was now making preparations for his trip to America. Actually, and I skipped over this uh, just for the sake of time, this was his second trip already. He had already gone in, those th in that three-year gap. He had already been over. Uh, ironically, it was to help the Wesleys. Charles Wesley had already come back sick and dejected. John Wesley was still in Savannah, Georgia, and Whitfield was wrestling over what his duty was now as a minister of the gospel, and he finally decided that it was his duty to go over and help John Wesley, who was still struggling in Georgia. And so he embarked from England, and actually the very day that he was going out, John Wesley, all dejected and convinced that he never even knew the Lord, was coming back into port. So they, they were literally two ships passing, well, in the day, not in the night. But So Whitfield was out there. He was just out there for a few months. Uh, he didn't stay long, but he did establish an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia. And it exists to this day, in fact. I'm sure in a different form, uh, but, but his legacy is still there in Savannah, Georgia, through this orphanage. So now, in 1739, uh, getting closer to the fall now of 1739, he prepared for a second trip to America. And in this, this time, he was going to take a tour, a grand evangelistic tour, up and down the coast through all 13 colonies. Well, he embarked in mid-August, and he arrived in Philadelphia the first week of November. So November 1739. And this, formally speaking, is the beginning of the Great Awakening, although, as we've seen, uh, we, we're, we're already seeing uh, the work of the Spirit in an extraordinary way. Well, he arrived, as I said, first week of November. Multitudes were already gathering in Philadelphia. They... The American colonists were voracious readers of newspapers. They were very interested in the events that were going on in England, certainly politically at this point. You know, I mean, we're only a few decades away from the American Revolution at this point when the Great Awakening is going on. Uh, 
but they were also interested in what they had been reading about Whitfield. So now he was coming to America. They were very, very, very excited. And so they were already gathered on Thursday night, the 8th of November, his first sermon. He preached on the courthouse steps in Philadelphia, right in the center of town, to a crowd of about 6,000 people. This was a nighttime sermon. Uh, The next night, very next night, now the numbers were increasing. It was up to 8,000. And there was only, there was was 15,000 in Philadelphia at this time. There was was 15,000 was the entire population. So over half of all the inhabitants of Philadelphia gathered around the courthouse steps, as close as they could get to hear Whitfield preach. They waited silently as he climbed the steps, and then this is what he says as he stood there, recollecting, writing in his journal later on, I never observed so profound a silence as now. All was hushed and quiet. The night was clear. Lights were in most of the windows all around. The people did not seem weary of standing, nor was I weary of speaking. The Lord endued me with power. My soul was so carried out in prayer, I thought I could have continued all night. Well, the next two nights, he preached again, uh, same time, same place. Everybody knew what to expect. They were all gathered. The numbers were always increasing. And uh, this, is, this is just a sample. This is one of the sermons that he would have preached at this time, The Lord, Our Righteousness. And this is a book of his sermons. Uh, there's only six sermons in it. There's a long biographical sketch by J.C. Ryle of George Whitfield in here that, that I highly recommend. This is put out by Banner of Truth, Select Sermons of George Whitfield. So one of these is The Lord, Our Righteousness which you have a partial quote of in your handout. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of preaching that they would have heard there in Philadelphia at the courthouse by Whitfield. Were you ever made to abhor yourselves for your actual and original sins? You see how doctrinal already he is. He's making the distinction in their sins between actual and original, which was a very, very important distinction for him in his preaching of the gospel. Were you ever made to loathe your own righteousness? Were you ever made to see and admire the all-sufficiency of Christ's righteousness and excited by the Spirit of God to hunger and thirst for it? Could you ever say, my soul is a thirst for Christ? Oh, when shall I come to appear before the presence of my God in the righteousness of Christ? Give me Christ, O God, and I am satisfied. Well, that's that's just a short, short sample of his very, very excellent sermons. Although... Uh, it has been said many times, and rightly so, that um, to read his sermon is not the same thing to have been there and heard his sermon. Two totally different worlds, really. But you get a taste of it by reading his sermon, certainly. Well, one, one among those thousands that was standing in there, and we've already alluded to him uh, a couple of weeks ago, was Benjamin Franklin. He was the leading printer in Philadelphia at this time. Uh, so he would have been very interested in printing Whitfield's sermons, which he did. He, he certainly did do. I mean, it was a moneymaker. There's no question about it. He, he says this as he listened. He said, how much the people admired him, that is Whitfield, notwithstanding his common abuse of them by assuring them that they were naturally half beasts and half devils. So he was preaching, preaching hard preparatory messages of the guilt and the vileness of man in his natural state. And... and Franklin was just, just uh, he was befuddled. How, how is this attractive to these people? Nevertheless, he said, it was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed now as if all the world were growing religious. 
so that one could not walk through town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Uh, Sounds like a wonderful, wonderful atmosphere at that time. Well, the colonists had been eager to see Whitfield. Whitfield was eager to see America as well. That's why he came. Uh, and there were certain people that he wanted to see. He, he was not ignorant of what had been going on with Freelinghausen and Tennant and Edwards. He was well aware, and he wanted to see each of these men in turn as soon as he could. He had read the faithful narrative of the surprising work of God that, that Edwards had written. He was already planning a visit to Northampton. Uh, he also had in mind Gilbert Tennant. And so he made a visit to New Brunswick to see Gilbert Tennant. He's, he says this, about Tennant. He and his associates are the burning and shining lights in this part of America. So he had spent a week in Philadelphia. Now he was in New Brunswick, which was in New Jersey, not, not, not very far at all from Philadelphia. And Tennant and Whitfield met, and their hearts were knit immediately. I mean, they were men of, if ever there were two men of kindred spirits, at this time it was, it was Tennant and Whitfield. Uh, they talked and they talked, and they walked, and they talked, and they talked, uh, recounting to me, says, says uh, Whitfield of Tennant, he recounted to me many instances of God's striving with his heart, and how grace at last overcame all his fightings against God. He also recounted the works of God in Raritan, you remember where Freelinghausen was, and in his own church in uh, New Brunswick. And in fact, from Raritan now, uh, Theodore Freelinghausen, who had heard, Whitfield, Whitfield is in New Brunswick. So Theodore Freelinghausen made the, oh, six or ten miles, I forget how long, it's very close, from Raritan on horseback to see Whitfield in New Brunswick. So now the three men, Tennant, Whitfield, uh, Freelinghausen, are all together talking about the great works of God uh, in America. This is what Whitfield says at this time of Freelinghausen. He is a worthy soldier of Jesus Christ, the beginner of the great work which I trust the Lord is carrying on in these parts. Well, the next morning, Whitfield was headed to, to New York. He had been invited by the Anglican minister there, Thomas Noble, to come and preach in his church. Uh, Tennant didn't want to depart or to see him leave, and so he decided to go with him. So they both traveled together on horseback to New York, continued talking the entire way. Uh, that night they got to New York. Tennant was going to preach not Whitfield, Tennant was going to preach. Uh, Noble had miscalculated a little bit in his invitation uh, because the bishop forbade Whitfield from coming and preaching in the Anglican church, of which, I mean, Whitfield was an Anglican, but again, because of these, these doctrines that he was preaching, he was forbidden to preach in the church. Um, so Whitfield the next day ended up preaching uh, out in the field. And in the meantime, where was Tennant going to preach? Well, Tennant preached in a Presbyterian church of Ebenezer Pemberton. Ebenezer Pemberton was the Presbyterian minister there. Uh, very like-minded with these men. So he said, well, if they're not going to let you in your own church, come on over to my church. Uh, take the pulpit, please. Preach as long as you like. And so Tennant preached that first night that they were there. And this is what Whitfield says as he sat in the audience listening to Tennant preach. Never before heard such a searching sermon he went to the bottom indeed. He convinced me more and more that we can preach the gospel of Christ no further than we have experienced the power of it in our own hearts. Being deeply convicted of sin by God's Holy Spirit 
at his first conversion, he has learned experimentally to dissect the heart of a natural man. Now I'm reading part of a quote that we had read in earlier weeks. He has learned experimentally to dissect the heart of a natural man. Hypocrites must either soon be converted or enraged at his preaching. He is a son of thunder and does not fear the faces of men. The next day, Whitfield himself took to the field. Pemberton was there, certainly. He wasn't going to miss this. And uh, so he was sitting in the audience out in the open field. And here is his description as he looked on Whitfield preaching. He is of middle stature, of slender body, a fair complexion, comely appearance. He is of a sprightly, cheerful temper and acts and moves with great agility. His wit is quick and piercing, his imagination lively. Every accent of his voice and every motion of his body speaks. He strikes out of the scriptures such light and excellencies which surprise his hearers. I never in my life saw so attentive an audience. Mr. Whitfield spoke as one having authority. He was all demonstration, life, and power. A mighty energy attended the word. The people's eyes and ears hung on his lips. I came home astonished, and I said, Surely God is with this man. Well, that's Pemberton's account of of being there, hearing Whitfield preach. The next day, Whitfield now made his way to Neshemini in Pennsylvania. You recall Neshemini is where the Log College was in William Tennant. Well, that's exactly who Whitfield was going to see. He wanted to see the old man himself. An old gray-headed disciple, he called him, and soldier of Jesus Christ, who keeps an academy 20 miles from Philadelphia. Well, the academy is the Log College. Old Mr. Tennant, says Whitfield, entertained us like one of the ancient patriarchs. We had sweet communion and spent the evening concerting measures for promoting our Lord's kingdom. This is what they were all about. How? How can we go out and, and preach the gospel, reaching the souls that the Father, again, to use the biblical language, that the Father has given the Son, whom the Son is coming to give eternal life to? How can, how can we work with God himself in his work? The place where in the young men's study, continues Whitfield, is in contempt called the Log College. From this despised place, seven or eight worthy ministers of Jesus have lately been sent forth. So the Log College is producing these young men. I mean, they're young men. They're coming in their early teens. They're leaving in their late teens. And going out, being ordained, and preaching the gospel in the same strain that, that, that we've been seeing for these weeks. One of these, one of these young men that was sent out was named William Robinson. We're not going to look at him this morning, but I want to save him for a few more weeks down the road. Towards the end of class, we're going to look at William Robinson uh, quite a bit. Uh, another was a young man who was 27, actually, at this point, uh, named Samuel Blair. We do. We want to spend the rest of the time now looking at Samuel Blair and his ministry. So we're going to leave Whitfield and, and shift gears to one of the graduates of William Tennant's Law College, Samuel Blair. Like the Tennants, Blair was from originally from Ireland. He immigrated over when he was a, a, a boy, in fact. Archibald Alexander, who's the author of the book, The Log College, says this of Blair. He was one of the most learned and profound, most pious, excellent, and venerable men in his day. There was a solemnity in his very appearance which struck his hearers with awe, even before he opened his mouth. And then he spoke as in view of eternity as in the immediate presence of God. Well, here again, this, this um, 
Again, I hope you're not getting tired of us coming back to this, but it's, just, it's there. If you read the accounts, you're coming across to continually. Here's another man speaking as in view of eternity, as in the immediate presence of God. And if and we, we can go back. I mean, we don't want to take the time now, but we just read this, this account of Whitfield saying, sometimes I was so overpowered with a sense of God's infinite majesty. We remember, we remember Tennant himself talking about having very affecting views of eternity and how that was the turning point in his ministry. Remember Jonathan Edwards, a sense of the glory of the divine being, or David Brainerd last week, captivated with the excellency and the greatness and the majesty of God. Well, this is, again, this, this is a, a, a trademark, a leading feature of all of these preachers of the gospel. Well, Blair had just been called to a very small Presbyterian church in New Londonderry, PA. It's actually uh, just about, a, about an hour from where Sue and I used to live in Pennsylvania. I've been there a few times. His, his tombstone is right there in the cemetery. Samuel Blair, 1712 to 1751. Those are his dates. Well, he's not only was the preacher in the church, but he started a school as well, uh, very much in the model of the Law College. Uh, the Law College was, a, was a, a mother, if you will, of many other small seminaries that pastors uh, began at this time to raise up young men for the ministry uh, out, outside of the Yales and the Harvards and, and soon to be Princetons and so forth. Well, Blair started one of these. One of Blair's students was a young man named Samuel Davies. We're not going to look at him this morning, but uh, again, a few weeks down the road when we look at William Robinson, we're going to look at Samuel Davies, who was a student of Samuel Blair, who was a student of William Tennant. So you see this kind of spiritual genealogy working its way through as the generations progress. Well, Blair settled in to New Londonderry, Pennsylvania, and he observed the sad state of things. He says... And again, this is a quote from our very first week. The most part of the people seem to rest contented and to satisfy their consciences with a dead formality in religion, a very lamentable ignorance of the main essentials of true practical religion prevailed. They were very generally careless at heart and indifferent about the great concerns of eternity. So now he's coming into a situation very much like Freelinghausen had come into, like Tennant had come into, like Edwards had come into like Whitfield in England had come into. But then he says this, this is Blair's words, in the spring of 1740, God was pleased to visit us with the blessed effusions of his Holy Spirit. The blessed effusions of his Holy Spirit. Well, again, it wasn't arbitrary, and and, and I hope I've emphasized this from time to time, this work of the Spirit, these blessed effusions, as, as, as Blair is calling it, were not arbitrary. They were closely tied to the matter that was being preached and the manner in which it was being preached. It was the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was being preached and it was being preached in an earnest and a close and a painful, as they might have called it, way. Very much like, as they understood, the Holy Spirit worked with the consciences of men. So they were preaching what the Holy Spirit preaches, that is, convincing the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, as Jesus says. And they were trying to preach in the way that the Holy Spirit himself would work upon a man's conscience. They were trying to cooperate with God himself. So I endeavored to prove from his word, that is the word of God, says Blair, the truths most necessary in order to their conviction and conversion and to deal searchingly and solemnly with them. 
The main scope of my preaching, and this is the matter, the main scope of my preaching at this time was the deplorable state of man by nature. So not their actual sins, but original sin. What is your, what is your nature, your state of nature since the fall? Our ruined, our exposed case, and the awful condition of such as were not in Christ. This was the matter of his preaching. But then the crown of it all, the crown of it all, the gospel itself, Christ crucified and exalted, he says, with the absolute necessity of faith in him alone. It, it, these are things we're so familiar with. We're so familiar with these things. But this is, I mean, this is the meat of eternal life. To know and believe. That winter, so he's going on now for a few months since he first came, preaching in this manner, he says four or five in the congregation became, began to, to come under a deep conviction of sin. Well, then towards the end of winter, in March, so this would have been 1740, uh, yeah, March 1740, Blair took a trip to New Jersey uh, for some church work he had to do with the presbytery out there. While he was away, a neighboring minister, and this is one of those cases where we don't even know his name. Blair doesn't tell us who he was. He was just a neighboring minister who was like-hearted with Blair, came and preached in his absence. And, and here's one of the great proofs, if you will, that it's not the men that we're interested in. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit himself doing the work. This man, with no name, came and he preached on the danger of remaining unfruitful while sitting week after week after week under the means of grace, being preached every week, bearing no fruit. So this is a very, very dangerous thing. He, his text was Luke 13.7. Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Well, the response in the congregation in the preaching of this sermon, it was sudden, it was unexpected. Uh, it was tremendous. A visible appearance of much soul concern, says Blair afterwards as he was describing the situation, though he wasn't there. He came back very quickly, as, as we're about to see. A visible appearance of much soul concern, so that some burst out with an audible noise into bitter crying. A thing not known in these parts before. So here's something new, and it's startling. People were actually crying out in the sermon, suddenly, unexpectedly, with such a sense of their doom, with such a sense of their guilt hanging on them. Well... 100 miles away, Blair was. He received the news very quickly and he rushed back to his congregation. On his return, a young man in the congregation came to see him, came to his office to see him. Uh, this was his story. He said, at the time of the sermon, unlike many others in the congregation, he sat there, he was unaffected entirely. It just it didn't strike him in any particular way. But he said the next day, he was out in his yard doing some yard work and he was clearing weeds from his garden, and he encountered this particularly large and difficult grubweed. I've never heard of a grubweed, but this, this is the word that he used. It was a grubweed. He cut the roots. He was working with it. He cut the roots, and it fell to the ground. And he said immediately, the words from the sermon came to his heart as a spear. He said, it just pierced my heart. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And this is what Blair says as he was relating the, the conference with him and the young man. So thought he must I be cut down by the justice of God for the burning of hell unless I get into another state than I am now in. 
Well, Blair says, He soon came into very great distress, which to all appearance has had a happy issue. He is to this day such as becomes the gospel of Christ. So here's a real change. Uh, It started with him going very low, and now he was brought back up. Well, the young man was was, um, kind of like the first fruits of of a great work now. Uh, With his conversion, many now began having a similar experience. The number of the awakened, says Blair, increased very fast. Our solemn uh, assemblies on Sabbath soon became vastly large. Many people from all around inclining very much to come where there was such an appearance of the divine power and presence. Spring turned into summer. This was going on very much like Northampton in 1734 and 35. Now is going on in New Londonderry in Pennsylvania in 1740. It was wonderful, says Blair, to hear their accounts. How that, and again, here's an anatomy, and we could spend so much time looking at almost every word in his description. How that when they were in the deepest perplexity and darkness, seeking God as poor condemned sinners, not just seeking God, but as they understood themselves to be poor condemned sinners, then grace through a Redeemer was opened to their understandings with a surprising beauty and glory so that they were enabled to believe in Christ with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Doctrinally, that is so packed, so rich with with the language of the confession, of the catechism, of the synod of Dort. Uh, It's just packed full in there. Well, that was the awakening in Londonderry. There's, we could certainly say more. I'm, I'm, and so much of that I'm drawing out of this book, which again I recommend, The Great Awakening by Joseph Tracy. This was the first account of it, full of primary sources. It was written in like 1840-something. Uh, wonderful account. So there's so much more. I mean, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg here. Well, now we're in the fall of 1740. Uh, Whitfield took a tour into the south. He came back up north. He went to Savannah to his orphanage. Uh, Again, we're skipping so much here. Uh, Preaching all along the way. Finally, he's coming back up to Northampton to see Edwards. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up uh, next week, Lord willing, with him coming back to New England, seeing Edwards preaching at his church. And we'll just move on from there. So let's end now. Close in prayer. Lord, be with us in the coming hour. Particularly, again, as we sit under the preaching of your word, help us to hear your words, Lord Jesus Christ, and to join with you in your supper, which you've called us to. For your name's sake, amen.